Welcome back to Highly Respected in the New Year. I'm your host, Scott Greer. Today, we're going to have a very special year in review episode. Yes, I know it's no longer 2023, but we really did not get to do that last week because I had to do a Nikki Haley topic and I wanted to get on that and also ask answer some of our cognitively questions. So today, we're going to do our grand year in review and Thanks. Oversee how that may impact the new year in 2024. So the things to look out for in 2024. So a lot happened in 2023. Uh, I think <laughs> everyone could note that it was a deluge of news. A lot of it, uh, I wouldn't say, is uh, very good. And it's hard to you know, parse and decide what to cover in this podcast. Because I don't want to make it a extremely long podcast because it is a holiday. It is New Year's Day. And I want to get on the important topics to cover for keep in, keep, keep in people's minds as we go on into the new year. So deciding what is important to talk about. I think the best way to do that is two broad themes. And one is changes and developments on the right and changes and developments within the country itself. And those are the two ways to look at it. That might not include some topics or really focus on some topics that have been big news this year, such as the Israel-Palestine conflict. Very big topic. We'll discuss some of that influence on how that's changed in the right, maybe some of the influence that's changed on America. Uh, some may complain that I'm not talking about certain topics more than others or I'm focusing on one topic uh, to the detriment of others that they would prefer, but it is my podcast, so we will discuss that. So I think it will be best to discuss the changes on the right or the big moves on the right that have been impacting it. And I think the first thing you would have to talk about is the GOP now having majority in the House and what they did with it. And I think if you look at, you know, from the new year and what they did in 2023, I think you would conclude that they didn't really do much of anything with their majority. Most of the fights or most of what they did was fight over who the House Speaker would be. This started off the new or last year in the new year in 2023 is that they fought over Kevin McCarthy being the House Speaker. Uh, he had to go through multiple votes to get uh, or to offer concessions to conservative holdouts in order to get him the House Speaker. And then when he became House Speaker, uh, Republicans really didn't do much of anything. Despite being the border crisis being arguably the biggest problem for America. Actually, I wouldn't say arguably. It is the biggest problem of America facing it right now. Uh, the House didn't really do anything about it. They focused more on the standard Tea Party shit when they were there. It's when the, And focusing on Hunter Biden. So they get in and they have all these plans. They have a very thin majority and they appear to get enough concessions from Kevin McCarthy that they can do something serious. And what do they do? Uh, they don't really do anything. <laughs> they haven't passed any serious legislation. Uh, well, I mean, the House did pass a good, a pretty decent border bill in May. Uh, but of course, it had no chance of passing the Senate. So nothing they've really done has made a huge impact besides the House Speaker battles. Uh, they did remove Kevin McCarthy as House Speaker. And then there was a whole... Uh, ordeal to find a new replacement and then they found Mike Johnson and everyone's like this is so awesome this is so much better and then Mike Johnson has been largely the same as Kevin McCarthy but not as good as a fundraiser and 
seemingly in less control of his caucus uh, to get them unified. We'll see. He may turn out to be a better House Speaker, uh, depending if they can get a border, if they can get a deal done on border funding in exchange for Ukraine funding. That's more on the Senate side if they could do that. But if it gets approved in the House, then Johnson can say that he was a more effective legislator, a more effective leader of the GOP House caucus than his predecessor. So that still remains to be determined. But so far, he seems to be about the same as Kevin McCarthy. And I think he's uh, the one difference is that they're not raising as much money, which is a huge problem for GOP. You know, when we talk about a lot of the electoral problems of the GOP and why they're losing elections. There's a lot of reasons. You know, there's the issues of abortion. There's some of the fact that they're not getting out a lot of these Trump voters because Trump's no longer on the ballot. Uh, maybe you can say that there's maybe not the best candidate choices there. There's a, and you know, maybe that there's rather not maybe. I think one difference between the elections we were seeing in 2021 Versus 2022 and 2023 is that the issue of COVID lockdowns was a huge help to Republicans and a lot of voters turned out to cast their ballot in rejection of the insane COVID lockdowns. That's no longer there. There's a lot of those reasons, but a reason that is there's a lot of core fundamentals that the GOP is failing at and fundraising is huge. Looking at the races in 2022 and 2023, Democrats are out fundraising them by a lot. In the Arizona Senate race between Mark Kelly and Blake Masters in 2022, Mark Kelly had like six times as much money, uh, raised as much money as Blake Masters. I think it's even more. I don't want to say it's 10 to 1, but it was like 7 to 1. And that is a huge disadvantage for Republicans. And this problem is only getting worse, is that with the fundraising issues. And they're not having really that prevents them from building the type of ground organization they need to get out the votes. They have really bad get out the vote operations. This has been a problem for years and years. This is a huge problem in 2020 uh, with their get out the vote operations. I remember, you know, talking with people involved in that in 2020 and they're like that day of they're like our get out the vote operation shit the bed uh, today. And I don't know if these issues are, I don't think these issues are being resolved for next year. And certainly the fundraising problem is only getting worse. And so that is something to come with uh, Mike Johnson and Kevin McCarthy. Now you could argue that focusing on better issues or fighting for better issues may come at the expense of getting more money, and that's a worthwhile trade-off. So I would agree with that. Maybe you could say that you're not getting as much donor money because the GOP is moving in a better direction. Um, there is a little bit of that, but at the same time, you know, there's just not good fundraisers within the party. Uh, the party organization is horrible. And this comes at a price when it, when elections. I mean, Democrat organization and fundraising is very strong right now. And that is helping them a lot in elections. But, you know, that goes into one of the issues of the 2023 elections. One of the big news cycles for the GOP with that, we're switching around a little bit because we're going from something that was happening in January to something that happened in November. But that's going to be a lot of the podcast today is that we're not going to go in chronological order. We're just going to go in order of things that I feel are appropriate. So you see this with the GOP House. You know, they're having their issues, fighting over this. They're not getting really much done. Then in November, there's, you know, fairly 
important elections that could be seen as a barometer for what could happen in 2024. And the GOP did not do well. They were supposed to win, you know, they were expecting to win the state legislature in Virginia, these state Senate races, they lost. Didn't do as bad as it first looked like. There was a slight improvement from previous elections. I mean, prior to 2021, they did increase some of their seats, but they didn't get the majority. So there was a loss. Uh, They lost the Kentucky race, gubernatorial race, which, you know, that's a deep red state. Had a, you know, a guy who is approved by both establishment and MAGA. I mean, some people probably didn't like him very much, the black guy. Uh, who ran against the popular Democratic governor. He lost. And then in Ohio, the, uh, there was an abortion referendum you know, to, to ensure that abortion remains legal in Ohio, and it passed overwhelmingly at the ballot box. Also, the, uh, a resolution to legalize marijuana also passed overwhelmingly at the ballot box in Ohio and a few other places. So it was not quite good results that they were seeing in these elections in 2023. Now you could say that there's unique circumstances in all these places. You could say that Virginia is so blue that, you know, maybe it's a little bit too much to hope for to win the state legislature. You could say that. You could say that in Kentucky, it all came down to personality and that the fact that the current governor, Andy Bashir, is just so modern and so popular that it didn't matter who Republicans would put up against him, he would have won. You could argue that. But when it comes to Ohio, and maybe you could say that, well, the Ohio thing, these voters may vote to legalize, vote for legal abortion, but they're not going to, they're going to vote for a Republican. There are a number of them who are going to vote Republican in 2024, which is probably something that a lot of conservatives don't want to acknowledge. But, you know, when you look at some of these poll, when you look at some of these referendums on abortion in deep red states, it is clear that a lot of the voters who are voting to keep abortion legal, a number of them, also vote Republican on the ballot. So there is that weird uh, dynamic going on. And maybe you could say that this is too much uh, to read into, that there could be a completely different result. And you and one point you could say is that in 2021, it looked like Republicans were going to murder Democrats in 2022, and that didn't happen. Lots of events could happen between now and November that could really help the GOP and overcome the circumstances that hurt them in 2023 and 2022. But there is enough there that you can see some trends going on, which abortion is not helping the Republicans, but Republicans don't really know how to deflate the issue. You know, some of the idiots are like, let's do a national ban, 15-week ban, which Technically polls well, but to any voter, you know, they feel that abortion ban and it clicks on their mind that they're just going to ban abortion outright. Uh, no, not even 15 week ban, total abortion ban. And a lot of the people proposing abortion ban, a 15 week abortion ban, uh, don't really help their cause by then going into more um, further out proposals, more radical proposals, such as, you know, banning birth control, banning surrogacy and IVF. Uh, there's been even calls to ban genetic testing. And uh, so those are, these issues are not popular at all. And so it's hard for them to say, oh, we just want a 15-week ban. And then you go in their public uh, statements and they're calling for bans on birth control and IVF and other, and other means associated with this uh, birth and pregnancy. So this, these are not very popular issues. 
So even having abortion as being talked about is probably not going to help Republicans. So the best strategy is just say, leave it to the states and try to focus on issues that help the GOP, such as crime, immigration, and the economy. And just say, whenever asked, it's like, it's a states' rights issue. And that's probably the best that the GOP can do. And maybe that might work as other issues come to the fore and are a bigger factor in voters' minds as they go to the ballot box in 2024, you know, maybe immigration just overtakes it and maybe it doesn't prove as potent for Democrats to run on in 2024. So that remains to be seen. But seeing from these elections, the one thing, a couple things you conclude is that, you know, GOP is shitting the bed when it comes to fundraising and organizing. Abortion is not helping them. Trump actually may help because I think that there are a number of voters who are not turning out and not voting because Trump is not on the ballot. You know, and they thought that 2020 was going to be a bloodbath. And uh, you could argue that Trump did very well in 2020. I mean, it's not even you can argue is that he did far better than he was expected to in 2020. And they're just thinking that this is going to be a catastrophic election where the Democrats are going to even have a supermajority in, in Congress and all this stuff. And that didn't happen. That didn't happen. And even if, you know, you take the Democrat position that is like, you know, it was the fairest, freest election ever. You know, there's only 30,000 votes between Trump and victory. And that's even taking from the standpoint that it was free and fair. There's no rigging at all. And so <laughs> and even this is also even for forgetting what's going on with voting. You know, they had these mail in ballot rules that obviously favor Democrats and they can do massive ballot harvesting and have all as many, you know, dubious votes as they want. You know, even just thinking about how media rigging us, there's a massive amounts of social media censorship. You know, every cable news channel is talking about how Trump is guilty of genocide for what he did on COVID. They have the death tracker. You know, they really tried to frighten people as much as possible. And look at the election results. Trump does get voters to turn out in his favor. And I think that will help GOP in 2024, even if he is convicted uh, of, you know, in one of these trials this year, you know, I don't, it's not going to be a blowout because there's going to be so many people to turn out to vote for him that it will negate some of these losses or some of these fears among GOP. It will help, it will help their get out the vote operations. Now for the next thing impacting the right is Trump and the primary. So there's two aspects to the Trump. One, the biggest aspect is the prosecutions against Trump. This is like such, it is arguably probably the biggest political news story. I mean, there's so many things that are going crazy uh, in the Biden years. You know, everyone thought it'd be a return to normality, that, you know, everything would calm down, that there wouldn't be as much news. It would be like pre-Trump years, which, you know, looking at what news companies focused on, in the Obama years, you know, they would have like a whole week de dedicated to Obama doing a latte salute uh, to a Marine. You know, there was not a lot of news material for them to go off of or senators making comments that today that wouldn't even make would definitely not even make front page news would be like a month long discussion as there was like just not much news going on. It seemed like a more normal, uh, calm nation and calm world. Uh, today, there's not that. I mean, you've got, you know, world, you've got crises all over the world. You've got Ukraine, you've got Israel, you've got what's going on with the Houthis in Yemen. You've got 
fears over China may taking Taiwan. You've got India doing crazy stuff, you know, against its Muslim. Well, I, some people may approve of what they're doing against the Muslim minority, but you have that going on. You have this insane border invasion and you just have all these political problems and internal problems happening in America. You know, I have these very important elections going on all over Europe, you know, with unprecedented results of the right and nationalists winning. So there's just a lot going on in the world today. So, but when it comes to things that are very important and unprecedented in American history, the indictments against Trump are really something important. And I don't think that they've been given as much weight in this country because we have so many crazy things going on and that it doesn't get as much focus as you would think. And even going back to the Trump years, you know, news media made up stories to get, you know, worked up about. You know, a Trump tweet could just cause a whole week long news cycle. You know, him being mean to reporters, being like, democracy is over. We can't have this. He just he just insulted the CNN reporter. He talked back to them. How dare you? This is Mussolini. This is dictatorship. And they would have hysteria all the time. And then when something actually big and important happens, you know, it gets four indictments in one year. You know, it's just like, oh, well, <laughs> it's it's just not treated as important as you think. And maybe that's just with the news today. I think it's also with, I think, hyper politicization that was happening under Trump is been dissipating a bit. I think more people are wanting to focus on sports or TikTok or video games or whatever, and they're not as plugged into politics as they were and news as they were in the Trump years. And you can see this with the massive layoffs that are happening in news media. A lot of these new media outlets, new online media outlets are shutting down like BuzzFeed News completely shut down. Uh, over the last year, CNN was laid off like hundreds and hundreds of people. Washington Post is laying off hundreds and hundreds of people. So there's big, um, maybe not hundreds of hundreds, but hundreds of people <laughs> for these outlets. So there is a real decline in news c consumption. And that means that people are not as plugged in and as feel as important about these political events. But the indictments are very important. And, you know, this sort of started off and some people were like saying, oh, he wasn't going to be indicted. This wouldn't do it. And then he got all four indictments that he was expected to. And he might even get a fifth indictment this year, depending on what they do in Arizona. So because there's a case in Arizona that they're pursuing similar to the Georgia case and officials there may charge Trump alongside these electors, uh, alternate electors, which they've done in Michigan. They've done in Georgia. And they did in Nevada. Uh, they're looking to do this in. They're looking to do this in Arizona. I think they're going to do this in Arizona sometime this year. They're they can't do it in Pennsylvania. Can't do it in New Mexico because they the alternate electors you know made sure that it, how they signed up for this was legally sound or 100 percent legally sound that they could not be charged with anything. Uh, they may even do it in Wisconsin. So. There are these issues there. They're going along with that. So this is big stuff that the state is taking the prosecution against Trump, or, you know, really persecuting Trump and his core supporters. It's a big moment for the nation. We've never really done this before. I mean, there's a few presidents we may have done this, um, Richard Nixon for one, but we've never actually had these prosecutions for him, and we have four. 
against him in one year. And also the prosecutions against his electors, the continuing prosecutions against the J6ers. And it's really trying to create this narrative that MAGA is an insurrectionary force. It's a threat to democracy. It, is, it tried to do a coup against the United States government in the aftermath of the 2020 election. And this is furthered along by these uh, prosecutions and indictments against Trump. So you would think that this would be the biggest news story of the year, but I don't know if you would be the biggest news story of the year. It was really greeted with a shrug by the country. And when these indictments were first announced, liberals were terrified that there were going to be J6s all over the country. It was says uh, this is a big worry I think about them doing this is that they really thought that there this could upset the country and cause a lot of social turmoil, and none of that really happened. We had a few scattered protests throughout the country, nothing really notable to say or to see about these protests. I mean, of course, these were happening in liberal districts. You know, it's not like there's a ton of conservatives in in uh, Clayton County, Georgia, or in New York City, or in D.C or even in, uh, in Miami, where some of these uh, prosecutions are happening, but there is just no major protests. And so those fears of, you know, J6 times three or whatever they expected never occurred. And I think that's also why they decided to pursue these prosecutions, because they were worried that maybe, you know, liberals were are deeply traumatized by J6. I don't think that this is, which is stupid to be, but I don't think it's, uh, I don't think they're lying by saying about like, they're like, this is another 9-11. They are like still triggered by it. And they were very much afraid of what could happen there. And I think there was hesitation to prosecute him and charge him because of what could happen. But once they learned that, you know, I th the first indictment from New York of Alvin Bragg was a, t was a trial, was a test to see what would occur, what would be the nation's reaction. And just seeing as like, oh, well. Uh, I guess they're prosecuting them. They're just like, let's do this. Let's uh, keep prosecuting you more. But the, the second crazy thing is not that there's no social turmoil, is that the indictments have helped shore up support for Trump among Republicans, which you would think that this would, maybe in some of the liberals who are trying to prosecute him, would think that there would diminish his support and hurt his support. Instead, it increased his support. His poll numbers are higher than they were when he first started running for president in November of 2022. I know these really helped him out and, and secure and center support around himself. So at the same time that there's a shrug at, from the nation, it's also increasing support for Trump, but it's not coming at the risk of tearing at our social fabric or social or violence or riots or anything it's you know within the normal parameters of political discourse that there's increasing support of trump so what are the takeaways from this important event one is that liberals realize they can use state power against conservatives without much repercussions and this is not just against trump i mean there's also the alternate electors that i mentioned there's also the Ricky Vaughn case against Douglas Mackey, how they're persecuting him over memes. There's been a few other cases of that. I mean, it's what's happening with the J6ers, that they can just go after these people and they don't really have to worry about it. And Trump is, you know, the main guy on the right. He is the real leader. If there's anyone who could count as the leader of the American right and as a very popular figure for our side, it's Donald Trump. You know, there is a type of support for him and loyalty to him and focus on him 
that is unprecedented in modern American history. And there's no one on the right who can compare to that, which is why he's winning the primary uh, by a lot. And he's going to easily win this primary, contrary to what people were saying at the beginning of 2023, which I was right on. Everyone was like, you're stupid. Wait till DeSantis. Wait for the announcement buffered of DeSantis. And DeSantis is just proven, as I always predicted, of how DeSantis would go in a primary. But we'll get to that in a moment. Anyway, he's the core figure. He's the charismatic figure and the leader, and they still want to vote for him, but they're not willing to go to the barricades for him. They're not willing to have a civil war or revolution over that, which there's no moral judgment of that. I think it's just something that the right needs to accept, because if you go on Twitter all day, everyone's like, civil war is just around the corner, revolution's around the corner, whole collapse is going to happen. The system just has no legitimacy, blah, blah, blah. And then you see, okay, you all predict all this stuff happening. And there's a major event that would cause mass social unrest in other countries and other time periods. You know, there's been several times where they've tried to prosecute popular leaders of an opposing party, and that leads to riots and uh, other types of social turmoil. And, you know, all these people predict, you know, civil war or national force is just around the corner. Just wait for it. This is we really have a moment that can set it off. And then you have this case where they're prosecuting Trump and literally nothing happens. It's not even the most important news story. I mean, the Bud Light boycott, which we'll get into in a moment, was much more important to the right than the Trump indictments in terms of like things that they were more passionate about, more motivated by. Uh, especially online. I think with online and among the activists, among the hardcore consumers of conservative content and news media, the Bud Light boycott was more important to them than the Trump indictments. And uh, I don't think we're going to have a civil war over the Bud Light. <laughs> uh, I'm going to make that prediction. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb and say we're not going to have a civil war over Bud Light, but uh, maybe I'll be proven wrong. And so that's just like dismissing a lot of these theories that we have about this. And that's also what helps the left is that the, you know, or the libtards is that they can easily arrest and prosecute people that they perceive as political enemies. And the most that will happen is that people will sell T-shirts of Trump with a mugshot. Um, and, and you can even see the type of mass social unrest that can happen with, you know, in Spain, there was a prominent nationalist leader who was nearly assassinated, nearly killed. And that sparked off right wing riots and protests. Whether that was the most productive thing, you know, one can argue about that. I don't know if that would be very, it wouldn't be very productive here because then they just arrest more right wingers. Look at what happened in J6. But I think with the level of content and what all these people talk about on Twitter all fucking day and on social media, you know, they, you know, we're just around, you know, the right is extremely dangerous, which the left wants to believe, but also people on Twitter want to believe. And you don't want to fuck with us. It's about fuck around and find out and you'll see what happens. And then this is the type of event that could spur all these fantasies of what's going to happen to America and these wild fantasies and just nothing happens. So you have to realize what the state of America is, is that hyper politicization of the type we saw from 2017 till I think this extended till like the COVID lockdowns were lifted in early 2022. That is largely gone. There's still people are very political and very involved in this stuff, but the public reception of all these important news events that are happening throughout the throughout the world and throughout America are much less 
uh, energetic, I guess is the word you could say, than they were in, say, 2018 and 2019. I mean, the amount of just stuff that would you know, conjure up months of outrage and mass protests during the Trump period, uh, you know, we're not seeing that now. Now, that could all return if Trump gets a second term. I think there's a very good chance of that. But for the time being, it's not happening. And there's benefits for that for the right. I think there's less of a push for uh, censorship than there was during the Trump period. There's, uh, you know, censorship has definitely been much, our, our free speech on the internet has certainly been a lot better now than it was during the Trump period. Large part, this is due to Elon Musk, but it's just not, there's not as much intense demand for it among news media because they're laying off a lot of journalists and it, there's not as much intense demand from the government. So that's one positive thing. And I think if you don't have the hyper-politicization among the lib libs who think that fascism is around the corner, that will help GOP win an election in 2024. And I think also Trump is a known quantity. I think it's hard to, you know, turn him into the next Hitler when people remember his first term. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't Hitler. Uh, so they're not going to have the type of hysteria that they were able to conjure up as they did in 2016 and 2020 because Trump is a known quantity. They know what he's going to do. And also his, his indictments haven't infected his support among Republicans. As I said, it, it arguably, it, well, not arguably, it did increase. And a conviction may change that. Polling does show that a number of Republicans would reconsider their vote for Trump. Now, we have to wait to cross that bridge when it occurs. Maybe they change their minds. Maybe that doesn't affect them as much. Most smart uh, guesses say that it will affect Trump. How much? That remains to be determined. So a conviction could diminish his support, but I, a conviction is not going to lead to the type of mass social unrest and turmoil that everyone on Twitter believes is just, you know, the right is ready to unleash, you know, is ready to overthrow the government, which they're not. Um, if anything, they're just there to tweet more and post more, <laughs> which, you know, I, I, I think when we've seen some of these like large demonstrations and violent protests from the right, they've generally not gone well for the right in America. Uh, see January 6th. So I'm not saying that this is the smart thing to do. I think, you know, J6 and anything really hurt the right and by the type of backlash it was able to generate. So I'm not saying that, and I'm of course not arguing for this stuff. I'm just saying compared to what everyone talks about all the time and like a lot of the popular rhetoric you know, this popular rhetoric online is completely out of touch with what reality is in America. That brings me to the other big development on the right is Elon Musk Twitter. <clears throat> I mean, and now it's X, but Elon Musk Twitter has had a tremendous impact on the right, or at least the online right, and how rhetoric develops and what uh, what now people get to talk about or want to talk about um, in conservative spaces. Now, there's been some very positive elements in this. I think when you see the amount of people talking about the Great Replacement and talking about black-on-white crime and anti-white racism, this has very much helped with Elon Twitter. And even with some of the stuff about Israel criticism, you know, there's a way more stuff of that uh, being allowed on the right, or people are more interacting with that than ever before, thanks to Elon Twitter and the lack of censorship. So those are very good. 
is that they now have a lot of right-wing rhetoric, at least when you see it online, now reflects a lot of what the dissident right has been talking about for years and people would get fired over if they discussed and now it's common discourse for the right. And this reflects, you know, and reflects in people like Charlie Kirk, what they're talking about with Tucker Carlson, even though he's no longer on Fox News. You know, that's now, uh, Tucker was doing this stuff even before Elon Twitter, but it's now been expanded thanks to Elon Twitter. But there's a few problems with this. One is that there is tons of idiotic content that now rises to the surface. And it's because there's this intense focus on content farming where everyone is just trying to get the highest engagement possible. And so people will spread lies and ridiculous conspiracy theories and this really hysterical content that they know is wrong and they're just trying to get as much engagement as possible. And there's also a monetary factor now due to the fact that people can make money through Twitter advertisements and get revenue from that. And the more engagement they get, the more money they make. And so they now dedicate themselves to content farming. And we've seen a lot of stupidity take over the right. Uh, this started off at the beginning of the year with Damar Hamlin, with the Damar Hamlin body double theories that everyone was rolling with. And you saw major accounts that were getting like 50,000 likes on Damar Hamlin body double clone accounts stuff. And it's like totally ridiculous. We've been seeing weather machine content that's been getting tons of great, uh, huge engagement. Uh, you know, it started off with the earthquake in Turkey, but then there's been other weather weather machine stuff because there was stuff in Hawaii, the fire in Maui, where there, you know, people wanted to say that, oh, it was set up by, you know, there was the child trafficking also involved in this great fire. They're trying to do this, or it was all about property damage, or property values. Oprah Winfrey used a space laser to, one, increase her property values and to abduct the mole children. <laughs> or something like these are stuff that gives a insane amounts of engagement and this just carried on there was like tons of tweets saying the ukraine war is fake it's like how the hell is it fake and it's like oh these video clips aren't there once again getting thousands and thousands of likes and then it got even sometimes you could say this stuff's like harmless you know whatever uh but this is the stuff that really engages people and it got worse you know with the ufo stuff the UFO stuff is perfect because this has become a huge, you know, interest among the right. And for a lot of reasons. One is that, you know, it's relatively harmless. Like, you're not going to get canceled for talking about UFOs. And also you can exaggerate it more or make it even more uh, content farm friendly by saying it's not just that they're UFOs. They're demons. They're demons. They're, they're, it's, they're being drawn here by the drag queen story hour, I guess. So we've got to be on the lookout for demons. And this was seen with, you know, I'm mostly a fan of Tucker. You know, I think he's done a good influence. But this interview he did with Tim Cast and Charlie Kirk at a TPUSA event where he talked about how the UFOs are demons and there's like, angels fighting and i was just like listening to it and tim cast was going and nodding their head you know the whole the whole crew was nodding their head as like acting like they're listening to socrates or something and you're just like sitting there and this like this is the most insane fucking thing i've ever heard in my life from a major commentator now i don't want to say that this is all negative about tucker but um and maybe tucker genuinely believes this but i think it's uh, very concerning when you have major figures say ridiculous shit like this and this is what's the uh, what's being produced by the content farm. And there's also dangerous stuff too. Well, maybe not dangerous is the right word, but there's also really bad, harmful stuff that comes from this. One 
is the desire to dox and unmask white nationalists who gather in public and do these stupid protests. Now, I've talked about these stupid protests a lot. What the like Patriot Front and those guys do, it's counterproductive. You know, they're supposed to be winning over normie conservatives and Trump supporters, and they all think that these guys are feds and what they're doing is stupid. And you would think that this would cause them to change their tactics and do something more productive to win over people. And a lot of the, these guys are just naturally idiots. But they choose not to do that. They keep going out in public with skull masks and, and like Nazi flags and stuff. And obviously this uh, isn't winning over people. And they all think they are feds. But then there was an incident over the summer where uh, Proud Boys, a group that is infiltrated by the federal government. You know, they're, you know, this is found out at their court case in their trials uh, during the, over J6. You know, they've been charged with sedition and stuff. They, you know, that came out that they're, you know, that they're riven with feds. But the Proud Boys in Portland decided to fight and unmask these white nationalists who showed up. I forget the group. It was like Rose City Nationalists or something like that. And they unmasked them and... The idiots on conservative media are like, we're going to track down and figure out who these guys are. And the first guy they found out was already been doxxed by Antifa. And it, his information is on Antifa websites. And instead of assu correctly assuming that, oh, this guy's already been doxxed, he's just some random person who's not using his uh, thinking cap. You know, he's doing stupid stuff, but, you know, he's not a Fed or Antifa. There instead is like, we found him on an Antifa roster because that's what Antifa websites do. Of course, they... When they're talking about Nazis and fascists and racists, it's actually an Antifa roster. And all these conservatives are sharing it, getting massive likes and stuff. And you're just wondering how stupid these people are. And the second is they found a guy. The second guy they found was some dude who was over a thousand miles away, is Jewish, not likely to be involved in this stuff. Didn't really look like the guy either. He looked sort of like the guy. And this is just some college student over a thousand miles away. And they found proof that's like, this guy wants to work for the government. It's like thousands, tens of thousands of people want to do that. I mean, uh, and it's not like, oh, random college student, we need you to go over a thousand miles away to be in an anti-Semitic group, even though you're clearly Jewish. <laughs> but I don't know how that works. But they're all like, wow, we tracked him down. This guy is totally a, a, a fed. And all these guys are doxing some random dude. And you're like... This is like Antifa with like 60 IQ that's going on here. And it was so stupid. And like Elon Musk was promoting this stuff. And major conservatives like Benny Johnson was like, we need, a, we need to dedicate ourselves to rooting out and finding these racists and exposing them and doxing them. And instead, you know, you're, these guys are already doxed. You're relying on Antifa. And then you're just such, you're such idiots. You just say, this is an Antifa roster. And some of this stuff also came out with sleuthing is that they're, you know, the new way that the Republicans in the House want to win over conservatives is they just release random J6 footage. And the latest batch they had, you know, anytime, there's some time, you know, a lot of this footage does confirm that this wasn't a riot. It wasn't a coup. Police were letting them in. A lot of these people thought they were allowed to go in. And so it was showing that a lot of these people didn't commit crimes. I, I think that's, it gives further evidence for it. Uh, it doesn't really, I, I don't think it really provides the uh, smoking gun that like the feds were involved, but they try to find this. And one time they found a guy who was holding up what they appeared to be a badge. And it wasn't a badge. It was a vape pen. And the guy that they were 
saying was a Fed had already gotten four years in jail for just entering the Capitol. So that was stupid. And then there was a viral video. They got like 20,000 likes or so. And they're like, Antifa was in the building. And, you know, it's outside the Capitol. And they're looking into an office window. And what do they see? They see an America First flag, AF flag. And what do they assume that is? They assume it's an Antifa flag. And uh, you couldn't fact check that. (laughs) And so it's just like you just see constant level of stupidity. And this is what rises to the top because this is what influencers are incentivized to care about is that they're incentivized to be even dumber to meet their audience to make more money and to get more engagement and popularity and this is what's rewarded now and sometimes you do have interesting topics talking about you know elon musk is talking about the color of crime elon musk is you know talked about what's going on in south africa you know and the farm murders and it's like technically white genocide He's talked about what's going on in Ireland and all these things. And a lot of these stories that are important that should get out there are now helped by social media. But it also comes with an incredible level of idiocy at the same time. And it really encourages and spreads the most noxious development within the right is the insane clown party. And to a lot of normal people who are not as plugged into this stuff... You know, we do resemble uh, just like a total clown show that is focused on the most ridiculous stuff, doesn't answer normal people's problems. And then we wonder why we're not winning elections. And then, you know, you go on Twitter and it's because the UFO demons have, uh, you know, hijacked uh, people's minds or something. I don't know. That would be if I tweeted out that that'd be like 15,000 likes. And it's like, this is brilliant analysis. Uh, far more brilliant analysis than what I'm giving right now. So I just think it's like become very uh, low IQ, low lowest common denominator, and just complete emphasis on entertainment rather than changing the world. And that's, um, I think that's something very detrimental to our goals and what we want to accomplish. So that's just like a fear that I've seen with that that's been developed thanks to Elon Twitter is that we do see you know, our views are becoming more popular at the same time that the right itself has become really stupid. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you you take a step back and maybe a step backward, you know, a step forward at this time. So uh, I don't know. I, I hopefully. Um, so we're benefiting from Elon Twitter and a lot of this stuff was pre Elon Twitter. You know, this stuff has been around for years and years. You could trace this back to the Tea Party. But even the stuff that we, you know, I talk about this with a lot of friends, you know, when we uh, look back at the alt-right, you know, the alt-right in early 2010s, we were like mocking conservatives for how stupid they are, how easily scammed they are, and all this stuff. And now you're seeing a lot of these dissident right talking points adopted by these people, and a lot of our views are that. But at the same time, it's far more dumb. It's far dumber. (laughs) Far more dumb. Far dumber. And far more scammy than it was even in the early 2010s when the alt-right was heavily critical of the conservative movement. But now some of, I don't really want to say distant right people are, are entirely tied to this. But a lot of, you know, associated elements and a lot of people adopting this stuff are fully into the insane clown party. And I don't, maybe it's not what we want our ideas to be associated with because, you know, the alt-right at that time we were trying to win over, you know, intelligent Young at that time have been millennials. Uh, now we're old. Now millennials are old. You could even say that millennials are middle aged. 
Uh, still a lot of millennials under 30, but you know, not as much as there were in 2015. Uh, but that's now the, you know, millennials are very different now. And, but at that time we were trying to win over young, smart people, mostly middle-class background. Um, and that's who we were trying to win over. And I think now when you see the right, it's very hard to win over, you know, those types that we were trying to win over, you know, young, bookish, you know, intelligent, you know, ambitious, middle-class background and then they come and associate with the insane clown party and they see the leaders of like lauren bobert and george santos you know that's another insane clown party moment is how george santos who's a gay hispanic con artist became one of the most popular figures for the right he's like a conservative icon it's like uh can we can we not be went over but like being a scam artist is and a minority scam artist i don't know if being gay is a is a is a good trait to have with the current right but being a minority scam artist is you know perfect for the right they're like please take away our money please please pilfer us we love this as long as we feel like we're owning the libs but yeah, so this there are elements of that. I think this is a larger theme that is definitely going to develop in 2024 is that, you know, the identity issues that we care about, the identitarianism is more talked about than ever before at the same time that the right is dumber than ever before. And there is conflict between that and what we want to focus on because it, it does hurt us to get our views out there if we're like, okay, you know, anti-white racism is real. Great replacement is a big problem. You know, and you have major candidates like Vivek Ramaswamy saying it's not a conspiracy theory. It's the platform of the Democratic Party was a huge moment. And you see people sharing, you know, you know, criticizing the ADL, you know, criticizing Israeli influence over American foreign policy and all this good stuff that's happening. But it's coming at the same time that we're associated with people who believe in weather machines and, you know, the, I guess they're controlled by the UFO demons and Damar Hamlin and all these people are getting replaced by clones <laughs> and stuff. And it's like, you know, you're not attracting smart people to this. You're attracting uh, old idiots uh, who want to be scammed and lied to. So that's just something to consider. Now, the last big moment for the right and there's been moments that I guess I could talk about more, but like Tucker Carlson getting fired, which I don't know if that has had as big of an impact. It's hard to see how that impact has been made. Uh, I think it, it may have impact on how Republicans view the Israeli conflict is that I know a lot of people have criticized Tucker for a variety of reasons. But Tucker, you know, when it comes to Israel, he's far more non-interventionist and far less of a supporter than the average conservative. And he would have spread these views through Fox News. And we see a lot of content on Israel when on the online, right? A lot of criticism, you know, like, you know, let's focus on America. Let's focus on our problems. Let's not, you know, act like Israel is our as a part of America. Let's not act like Israel, you know, is more important than America, which is a lot of conservatives who are important, say. But that and, you know, you've seen other influencers, you know, make some criticisms that are important, like Matt Walsh and uh, Charlie Kirk and a few others who have done this and Vivek Ramaswamy as well. Uh, but at the same time, it's hard to gauge how important of it. And polling shows that most Republicans are still have the same, you know, overwhelming support for Israel for whatever reason uh, among Republicans. And there are no Republican politicians uh, unless you count Vivek as a as a Republican politician and Thomas Massey, who are really criticizing Israel, who are reflecting the discourse on the on the Internet. Right. Because, you know, if you look at Congress, you know, they're 
you know, 100% lockstep behind Tel Aviv and Bibi Netanyahu. While on the online right, you would think that, you know, there would be a lot more Republicans doing this, but there's no elected officials doing this. There's no candidates um, that are making this a major issue. So it's not being and, you know, talk radio and Fox News are obviously not reflecting this. So I think, you know, maybe if Tucker was still on Fox News, that that would be how that viewpoint would be aired more and being found more apparent in talk radio and in terms of the real world right and that being found there. But it's very apparent in the online, right? It's just that we haven't really seen it translate into, you know, polling among Republicans and Republican politicians adopting these viewpoints. So that could be uh, a a change with Tucker, but it still hasn't been seen. I think it's more how Tucker at the beginning of the year was the most important voice in conservative media and most influential voice. And now he's definitely not. And that's why all these people are now attacking him, like Ben Shapiro, all these DeSantis supporters, even people whose career he made, like Pedro Gonzalez. Like Pedro Gonzalez would be a total nobody without Tucker. And Pedro has been attacking him, and so have all many other people have turned on him. And that's just a sign that you know they don't really feel like they have to kiss up to him anymore because he's no longer on Fox News. He's just like a, another guy on the internet with his own show. There's many people like that, like including Scott M. Greer. But that is just something uh, to keep in mind when you're looking at uh, changes. But outside of that, I think that was a big moment, but it's hard to gauge how big of a moment because most of the stuff that we were worried about that Tucker had introduced, that's still very apparent, and that's mostly due to Elon Twitter. And I do think that you could say that Tucker maybe controlled or directed what the right would focus on more when he had the Fox News thing, and maybe it would have been better to focus on stuff that was less stupid. But he himself uh, now engages in some of the stupid stuff. Uh, most, of, most of the time, he's still very good. He's talking on foreign policy and immigration identity issues. I still think he's mostly good. Uh, I just um, think that some of the stuff he uh, rabbit holes he goes down maybe isn't the most productive use of what he should do. But I'm ultimately very positive. I like that he's calling out Ben Shapiro for caring, not caring about America and caring more about Israel and stuff. So I would say he's mostly positive force. He's just not as influential as he was at the beginning of 2023, thanks to being fired. But the real important thing among the right was the Bud Light boycott. It's diminishing its importance or how much people care about it over time, but... In the spring and summer, it was the most important issue to conservatives. You know, Bud Light was about to threaten our civilization and take away all our freedoms and liberties and everything we valued. But thankfully, we boycotted Bud Light and we hit back against Bud Light. Uh, I was always mocked at a lot of it because I think about the importance of it. Uh, when it originally happened, I was wrong. I thought that the boycott wouldn't work because, you know, conservatives have threatened to boycott everything before and it has rarely worked. I mean, I pointed out the NFL comparison where, you know, all these conservatives like we're going to boycott the NFL. And at first it worked in 2017 when over the national anthem protests. And that's for some reason in 2021 and 2022, conservatives returned to the NFL and were the most fanatical supporters of it and defenders of it. Because, you know, when I originally had the Greerhead pledge of I will not watch the NFL, this drew uh, a incredible level of outrage from people on the right who felt that the most important thing that they could do is watch the NFL. This is apparently what the globalists don't want to do. And the NFL went, got even woker and conservatives returned and were its most ardent defenders. So I thought this might be the case with Bud Light. But Bud Light, actually, they did 
mainly due to there's all their consumer choices if you want to drink beer. And they turned, you know, Bud Light really got hurt in its market value. It was dethroned as the most popular beer in America. And, you know, they're, it's likely permanent reputational damage. They've been trying to repair it. You know, they've won Kid Rock back, who is boycotting it. They've got Dana White in the UFC promoting Bud Light. They've got Peyton Manning, who's a lot of conservatives like. He's a very popular, you know, former quarterback, very popular sports commentator. He's now doing advertisements for Bud Light. Travis Kelsey is also doing it. I don't know if that's the best way to win over conservatives, but he is a popular um, NFL player, so they could maybe get some people back. And they're trying to win back that bro demographic. So it turned out to be one of the few victories that conservatives had, cultural victories that they've had. And people expected it as like this is a you know, major turn in American history. The one notable thing I think that was uh, positive about it is that it did tone down some of the Pride Month stuff. I mean, there of course, all these corporations still celebrating Pride Month, but they realize that they can't be too excessive about it. And having satanic trans uh, clothing for kids was a bit too far. And they really didn't want to highlight that they're doing Pride Month as much as they were before because they were worried about getting Bud Lighted. And so there was uh, there was fears over going full Bud Light. But the intense focus of it over the years, and I mean, there were people like, Trump is not good on the Bud Light question. And it's like, the Bud Light question is the most important thing ever. I had people who were telling me that Bud Light is more important than the border. I had people telling me that Bud Light is more important than Trump's I had several people who, you know, DeSantis supporters saying that Trump, the Bud Light and its actions is far more important than Trump's indictments, which is just an insane statement. But based on conservative media and what they were most upset about, it was Bud Light thing. So I think it was a success, but the amount of attention towards it and the level of importance of it was uh, not not aligned with what it was in reality. And but it did show that there was this emerging conservative consumer market where, you know, not only was the Bud Light boycott important, they were also helping other things to succeed. They helped the Sound of Freedom movie become a box office success. You know, this is a small independent movie made by a Christian company and it became a huge success because of one over conservatives and they decided to make it a box office hit. Big news that that was going to do. And now you're probably going to see. Maybe not Hollywood, but other filmmakers do similar movies to appeal to that market. So that's showing it. And then the success of, of Jason Aldean's Try That in a Small Town, which appealed to conservatives, was had a very strong right-wing message. That, and it went number one on billboard charts. That was a huge hit. That was a big sign of the conservative consumer market is a big thing. Then the Richmond, North of Richmond, which I think now most people acknowledge was cringe. It was an okay song, uh, but the uh, hoopla around it was outrageous. And people were like, this shows that the whole country is turning against libs, which was not evidenced in the 2023 elections, but whatever. And that song was a hit due to first winning over conservatives. But then the guy who made Oliver Anthony decided that, you know, he didn't like having a conservative fan base and he tried to piss them off as much as possible. Most likely going to be a one hit wonder. But, you know, that still showed the power of the conservative consumer market, consumer demographic. And so there's that merchants of it. And you're going to see more cultural products cater to them. And, you know, there's all been these like, let's go Brandon raps and other things that have gotten big on iTunes and other things. There is a market there to cater your products to, and there are people to buy it. And as I argued in an article I wrote earlier this year, 
It is something that maybe conservatives will focus on when they don't feel like they can have real political victories. They will then settle for what happens in the Bud Light boycott or the success of Sound of Freedom. And then they can feel that they're in control of something while they can't be in control of elections and what happens from political sphere. And that may be a take that is and a development that is further exacerbated in the upcoming year, especially with what may happen in the November election. So there's uh, there's pluses and minuses with it. Uh, I still think that the Bud Light boycott and the intense focus on it and things going full Bud Light was a little ridiculous. But you know they did actually have results for it. I was uh, I was proven wrong based on, and I was basing these predictions on what had happened before. But in this case, it actually worked. So hats off to the conservatives. But I don't think it was quite the grand victory that maybe they took and. You know, we'll have to see the long-term effects of it, but it does show the emergence of a conservative consumer demographic. So those are the issues there. Uh, going with the, what the biggest things happening in this country are, I think one is the border, or the most important thing is the border. What is happening there is just compl- is totally insane. This month, there was over 300,000 illegals encountered. And also, you have to keep in mind, these are just the ones they caught and apprehended. There's like at least another 50,000, probably more now that they didn't catch. And these are not counting the ones that they're granting legal pathways to. There's about 75,000 would-be illegals they're allowing in every month through legal means, whether it's through the parole program, which they offer 30,000 migrants per month from four different countries, which are Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba, and Haiti. A few other countries get some type of similar type of program of parole. And then there's the ones who apply for asylum through the CBP1 app. And that welcomes in, I think, you know, 30 to 40,000 migrants as well. So there's roughly, I think 75,000 would-be illegals are being let in. So you're really having over 400,000 migrants being let into this country. And they don't have any fear of deportation They're effectively legal migrants because we give them a court date and we tell them you're not going to be deported unless you like rape and murder someone. And even there, it might be, uh, you know, it might it might not happen. So that's what's happening with these migrants. So they're effectively legal migrants. And what we're now seeing with the border crisis is that the the. Distinction between legal and illegal immigration is almost no longer there. It's like it's just immigration. This is what happens. You're more like the guest workers who come here legally are less likely to stay than (laughs) permanently than the illegal immigrants who are coming here. And there's far more illegal immigrants coming here than guest workers. And the illegal immigrants are just coming to take welfare and become a drain on city resources and this is just a major major problem not even just from the demographics angle because you know there has been uh, i think every year every year there's been about two million migrants who have come under biden maybe it wasn't in 2021 but uh, definitely in 2022 and 2023 so you really have like seven million migrants illegal those are the apprehensions and then you probably have like another three to five million migrants that came here through legal means are we never caught 
who came over the border. And that's just like you. So you could have, say, 10 million new foreigners have come here since Biden took office. And that's just, you know, that's astronomical numbers. You know, that's like three. That's at least three percent of the population that we've just added uh, to our country. So that's the most important thing to happen to our country, and it's getting worse unless something happens. I mean, we're going to have at least 200,000 coming every month, if not 300,000 coming every month. Once again, that's the ones we apprehend. Uh, more are coming through other means or we're not catching. And I think we can get rid of a lot of these migrants, uh, push them out of the country because... They're not coming for jobs. They're literally coming for this, you know, the welfare and the state subsidies. And that's what's happening to all these cities. I mean, these cities can no longer afford this stuff. And they're having a massive crisis dealing with these migrants from New York City, D.C., L.A., Chicago, Boston. They can't really handle this. These sanctuary cities can no longer handle this flow of migrants. Whether that's going to mean Congress does something uh, that remains to be determined. I mean, it would really help Democrats if they passed a strong bill to curtail it. And I think if there were, you know, expedited deportations, more border security, and these, you know, restrictions on asylum, this would draw down the numbers to under 150,000, which that would still be a lot. That would be more than under Trump. But it would get it off the front page, you know, news. It would also maybe alleviate some of the burden of these sanctuary cities and it would undermine the potence of it in the upcoming elections. So, uh, but I don't know if Democrats are going to do that. I think they're just too committed to open borders to actually want to do this. They're too committed to their ethnic lobbies that don't want to have this happen. So that's the most important issue that is happening. But I think if you, you know, Trump came to office, I think a lot of these migrants who came under Biden would Self-deport, because I mean, all you would have to do is have some really big show, you know, showy deportations, mass roundups. And once these migrants realize that they're, you know, the handouts are not happening and they do risk deportation, they would go back home. And so I'm not entirely blackpilled by it because I think, you know, this could help Republicans get in office and this could we could easily push these people back to where they came from with just smart policies that Trump promises to bring if he becomes proud, he becomes president. So, but if you know nothing happens to them, and maybe if Biden gets another term, uh, this is a big problem for our country. You know, it permanently transforms our country if they're allowed to stay and if more come. So, this is far more important than Bud Light, but Bud Light, of course, got more attention than this. The other second important thing I want to discuss is, you know, anti-white racism is becoming more apparent in our society with the racial quotas that companies have, even though they may not be stated. You know, there's news saying that, you know, the wealthiest corporations in America, only 90, you know, only 6% of their new hires were white men. Uh, that was a huge problem. But the real issue are, that's a real issue too, but I think a really disturbing thing that's happening is how juries can no longer convict black criminals or black murderers or black assailants uh, for attacks that they do against non-blacks. It's not just whites, because this has also happened against Asians where they had a black defendant who was on trial. All the evidence pointed that this is the guy who did it, and a jury couldn't convict them, or they couldn't agree to a sentencing. 
Now, there's been some really egregious examples of this this year. The one is this Asian uh, case from Delaware where there was this black guy who broke into a jewelry store. He stole some stuff and he beat the crap out of the Asian, Asian uh, store owner. And the guy was caught on video. They caught him with the jewelry. They, you know, they had this guy dead to rights. The victim had identified him, everything. And they couldn't get a conviction. And then, you know, it was really funny when they interviewed the people afterwards, like nonchalant. It's like, yeah, we really had it all out there, but, you know, we just couldn't get a conviction. It was like, you know, a team losing a game, you know. It's like, we almost got enough points, but we just didn't get it enough. But it's like, uh, you had literally every evidence possible to convict this guy and they couldn't get him. They couldn't get this guy. The assailant was a repeat offender, Calvin Ushery Jr. Couldn't find it. Couldn't get a case. Uh, couldn't get a conviction here. And it's not. It's not. It's no mystery why they couldn't get a conviction because it's a black guy attacking a non-black person, and they didn't want to convict him. Well, there's several other ridiculous cases. The one, one of the most outrageous was this case from California, which is this is a 2017 murder where these two black kids had uh, shot and killed. A white, uh, an elderly white guy in a robbery. And it was caught on film. The assailants admitted to the crime, but they couldn't get, they couldn't convict him on the serious charges relating to the death is because they claimed, their defense attorneys claimed that they were suffering from a sickle cell crisis and they had a low IQ and drug withdrawals and they're just not responsible for this. And this worked on the jurors uh, that they couldn't agree to these two people who had admitted to murder caught on tape there's no there's no indication they were not responsible for it but due to the fact that they're black they were able to get away with it ethan liming's uh, beating death which they had a trial for two of the assailants this this year one assailant was able to plead down to a, a pathetic charge where he barely served any time in jail now, two of the defendants, they brought him to trial, and they only convicted him of the lesser charges. They didn't find them. Um, they didn't convict, a jury didn't convict him of the serious charges, the most serious charges of, you know, violent assault. It, you know, it was very, uh, is like almost like type disorderly conduct type stuff that they found him guilty for. And uh, even the prosecutors had dropped the murder charges because they felt that it was just a you know a fight that happened and you know ethan limey accidentally died so that was what they uh, tried to argue and apparently the defense was able to use that utilize that argument in court the fact that ethan liming's friends had used a water gun against these guys gave them um you know a th authorization to murder a white kid and the 2017 case that was just uh, ruled this year, that was from San Francisco, in case I didn't make that clear. Then there was this case of Lazarius Harper, who uh, killed Kevin Kirk, who was a father driving home after getting pizza for his family in Houston. I think this occurred in 2022 or 2021, and they just had the trial this uh, this month. Conviction. And now this Lazarius Mr. Lazarius Harper was convicted of manslaughter. The family was wanting murder, but the jury could only agree to manslaughter. But this guy was clearly guilty of murder. They, he and his friends, uh, you know, hounded and, and chased Kevin Kirk in his car in ATVs and they shot him and he shot him in cold blood. Clearly a murder, you know, no reason for this, but they only pared it down to manslaughter and a jury couldn't reach a verdict 
uh, on a sentencing and the jury was likely trying to push for probation for manslaughter for a cold-blooded murder of a family man who was just driving home for pizza and he had the uh, unforgivable offense of upsetting these black kids on an ATVs. Well, they're not kids, they're adults. You know, I think the Lazarius was in his 20 is in his 20s. And they couldn't convict him. They couldn't get the jury deadlocked on sentencing. And they had to get a new jury pool. Now, the family was thankful because they were worried the jury was going to bring back probation <laughs> for a manslaughter. And they're, um, and that's what the defense attorneys were pushing for. And, you know, their defense attorneys were trying to blame Kevin Kirk for his own death. And apparently this worked on a number of the jurors. So this really just, this is a very disturbing trend with if you are murdered in a certain area by a black man and you're not black yourself you there may be a tough time to get that person convicted we have a few other cases that are coming up where this may be where there were prominent cases there was that left-wing activist who stabbed to death in new york there's a chance that kid gets off uh, <laughs> the leftists around that guy may help his defense so that's something different but then there's this really brutal case in baltimore where this uh, really extremely violent criminal uh, beat and rate, you know, had a brutally murdered this um, businesswoman, this up and coming young businesswoman who's a lib, who is a lib, who supported Black Lives Matter and really hurting the city's reputation. But there is a chance that they, <laughs> that they might not get a guilty verdict because, the, you know, a jury might not want to send a black man to jail over this. So there's like very much. Um, we're going to see more of these cases, and it's very, very disturbing. I think it does jeopardize how American justice is. And, you know, you always worry about putting, you know, criminal cases in the hands of judges. But I think in the future, due to the decline in human capital and how we can't trust, uh, you know, a jury of your fellow citizens to rule on these cases, that you would rather have judge, you know, for criminal cases I think you would rather have a trial by judge rather than trial by jury. I think if someone's plainly guilty, a judge would say you're clearly guilty and they would not be influenced. Even if they're black, they would know that they can't favor black criminals that much like a jury can. Uh, they would be more likely to incline to do that. And so that's just something. And even in some of these self-defense cases, you know, you might have a better chance with a judge like with Rittenhouse. If it was trial by judge for Rittenhouse, the judge would have immediately ruled in favor of Rittenhouse. There wouldn't have been, even been a question. But with a jury, you know, the fact that, you know, Americans aren't what they used to be. You really can't trust your fellow citizens anymore. You might as well put this in the hands of judges. That might be what we need to have take place if these cases keep happening. I mean, in a lot of D.C., they don't want to charge some of these carjackers because they're young. You know, they're like 13-year-old black teens and they can't get a jury to convict them. So that's happening in a lot of places that they choose not to charge these kids because they can't get a jury to convict them. So this is uh, definitely a disturbing trend going on in America and something that was made more apparent by this year. And I'm not even reading off all the cases. I just read off a few. So that is what's happening. And for predictions going into 2024, what we can look forward to, you know, there's movement stuff on right, you know, of the particular sphere of the dissonant right that we could talk about. But I think I'll leave that for other episodes of what 2024 might be looking like. I'm going to look at the bigger picture of world events that could happen. I think that the Ukraine conflict will reach a negotiation phase. I don't know if we'll reach a deal by the end of the year, but 
I think that's they're going to start negotiations. It may take some time. We may have a deal by the end of the year. I think if Trump wins, I think Ukraine will just cut a deal. Uh, they don't want to do there before Trump takes office. And Biden, the Biden administration is pushing Zelensky to start making a deal. So I think that conflict is going to be whittled down by or in the end phase by the end of the year. Uh, Israel-Palestine, I think that conflict is probably going to end even sooner uh, than then Ukraine, I think they'll Israel will declare a successful military operation or whatever uh, if they get their hostages back. And I don't know, it'll probably be back to normal uh, for them. I don't know what they're going to do with all these Gazans. Nobody wants them uh, for two reasons. Both the left and the right don't want them because the left feels that if by accepting them that they've countenanced Israel's ethnic cleansing and the right doesn't want them for they don't want Palestinians in their country. So I don't know what that is. One of the interesting things that will happen, that will be a major political issue of what happens with the Gazans and where they will go after the war. Um, But I think that will end uh, soon enough. Uh, Other issues, I think. I don't know if I want to make a bold prediction on Trump getting convicted, but I am now leaning to that there's a more than a 50% chance that Trump is not convicted in the uh, this year because it looks like all his cases are going to be delayed. One, his Georgia case, the t- black attorney general is already saying that that case is not going to happen before the election. The documents case in Florida, the judge is giving all indications that she's going to delay it after the election. Especially if he's the nominee, which he's going to be the nominee. Uh, the real question is the J6 DC case. They are fighting, Libs are fighting tooth and nail to ensure that that happens before the election. But I think Trump's legal team is finding ways to delay it. It's unlikely to happen in March 4th date that it's set for. It's pretty the it still could happen before he you know the convention before the convention but i think they are it's looking very good that he will get his trials delayed his uh, court cases delayed which will help in the election i think there if he is not convicted in 2024 there is a more than a 50 percent chance he will win the election so that is uh, major white pill I want to deliver. And those are big, important things that I want to say on um, world events. I think a lot of the things I described uh, are going to be in hyper, are just going to be more apparent. I think we're going to see more evidence of the conservative consumer demographic exerting its will. I think we're going to see a lot more stupidity <laughs> from the right. I also think that there's going to be more conversation started on the identity issues and the stuff that the distant right cares about uh, this year. Um, it will be interesting to see who are new and emerging voices on the mainstream right and conservatism. I think that Daily Wire is going to have even more influence over the right, which is not a good thing. Uh, you know, some people are decent. You know, Matt Walsh is better than Ben Shapiro, but the taken together, I don't know if Daily Wire is very good. You know, Candace Owens is still a Daily Wire person. I don't know if she'll still be with Daily Wire by the end of the year. Uh, and these are important things on what could happen with the American right. I think the right is going to do very well in European elections and that as they were doing in last year's elections with the exception of Poland. Uh, So that's going to be a very positive development. So 2024 is going to be a, a very crazy year, a year filled with news, a year filled with historic events and highly respected will be there to cover them all. 
So that is the year in review and a look into the future. And now we have our cognitively questions. I answered a lot of them last Thursday for the unlocked IQ supplement we did. Well, we've got a few more left to answer. And so as a reminder, you too can get the power to ask questions and suggest guests and topics. If you sign up for the convalid option at highly respected Substack, and that's at highlyrespected.substack.com, and make sure to sign up for the IQ supplements while you're there. So we'll start off with mystery because I did not answer this question last week because they said it was for the new year, so I wanted to wait till the new year to answer it. And he says, IQ question for the new year. What do you think a second Trump term will mean for restricting legal immigration? I worry that the Vivek... Elon types could someday reach a compromise with the establishment in which illegal immigration is completely eliminated, but the Great Replacement continues at pace as long as it's legal. Um, I think he could go, he's going to do a lot on legal immigration uh, through executive action, as he did in his first term. You know, legal immigration went down under Trump, and it was through executive actions to make it harder to come here legally. You know, they reduced the number of refugee intake. They made it harder to apply for asylum. They put additional restrictions on your likelihood to use welfare and be on state assistance, government assistance. You know, they ensured that those people wouldn't be allowed to immigrate. So it's just things like that and having the reputation of being, you know, an immigration hawk and hate and being anti-immigrant that can reduce the numbers and also bringing back the travel ban not allowing you know a lot of these immigrants from muslim majority nations to come to the united states so there's a lot of easy things he can do i think he will do a lot more of the things that he that he did in the first term and i think those numbers will come down but as i said there's like hard to uh, differentiate legal and illegal immigration now when these illegal immigrants by all stated purposes are legal immigrants and so really restricting asylum and who's granted asylum and how the asylum process works would significantly reduce immigration across the board illegal and legal and those numbers would just come down so i don't think uh you know, there might be some push for guest workers or stuff, but I don't even think that can get through Congress. But through executive action, he will reduce legal immigration. And so I'm very optimistic about that. I know some people may, uh, may you know, they think that Trump never did anything on immigration, but he actually did. And so he has a question on uh, Southern Heritage because he wants to know how we can restore it <clears throat> based on last week's uh, IQ supplement. If we can restore freedom of association, maybe we can restore the statues on private land in some small towns. It's like, I'll make that my question. How can we best preserve Southern heritage going forward? I think just these laws that the South or Southern states are, um, you know, enacting, saying that like banning the toppling of statues and restricting the ability for these cities to do that is the way to go. Because if those are on the book books, it's very hard for cities and localities to remove these statues. You know, Virginia had these similar laws protecting statues. And that's why the Robert E. Lee statue in Charlottesville took forever to take down. And, you know, they couldn't put it back up. It took the Democratic state government to change the laws to allow, you know, Charlottesville to go forward to remove it. But there were these laws on the books that prevented that. And when you have a deep red state like Tennessee and Alabama or Mississippi or South Carolina, it's going to be very tough for them, for these localities to ever take down statues because they would have to get state legislature approval or a state legislature would say, you just can't do that. And that would preserve a lot of those statues 
going forward. And even with what Florida's doing, a large part of the reason why Jacksonville took down these statues in their area, I think it may have just been one statue, is because they're worried about uh, Florida passing a new law to protect you know, historic statues that localities may want to take down. And they try to remove it before that was enacted, so they would have the freedom to to do that. But that's just the real thing you have to do, is just like through the state legislatures, go through and pass these laws, and it makes it very, very difficult for these states to do these things in a way. Now, if, say, random protesters raise a statue and nobody wants to put the statue up, then that creates a you know fight there. But this is... That's the best way to preserve it and ensure that we are not toppling every statue that leftists are offended by. So that is my answer to that question. And then K Max sent a question. He said, Scott, with the debate about college versus trade school, do you think part of the anti-school mantra many of the distant right have comes from the idea the left pushes that only dumb or lowly educated whites would support their own group or help them out? Um, you know, he talks about a Jewish person who supports other Jews is never considered dumb or ill-educated. But if any white person rejects the <clears throat> woke mantra, he is considered low class and a redneck. Is there a way to get more college-educated whites on the conservative side? It seems our side prefers just to drop out rather than join the fight. Uh, I've talked about how to get college-educated whites on this on our conservative side. I'm trying to work on an article on getting uh, youth votes and what the European right answers that. Uh, but I think it's a that a huge part of our audience is now Gen Xers who are very bitter about the way their life went, and you know they're divorced, and so they have all these arguments that they want to have, and they're like they just want to drop out, and they're you know angry about the course of things, which there's reasons to be, there's perfectly valid reasons to be angry about what's going on, but they're very anti youth, and they're. They view, you know, boomers were all telling everyone to go to college and then just have a good handshake to get a job. Now, Gen Xers are like, don't go to college, just go to trade school, and then you'll become a millionaire. And it's just as equally bad as vice as what boomers were giving. Uh, but the um, does it come from the idea that the left pushes that only dumb or lowly educated whites would support their own group or help them out? I don't know if that really has the case. I just think that we have a huge base of support. We have bigger base of support among downscale whites and that a lot of our group is now closer to downscale whites and there's this deep resentment towards non-downscale whites i guess are more uh, striver whites or which there's some reason they're good reasons to be and a lot of what the right is now even though a lot of the people who push this stuff are middle class themselves a lot of what the right pushes now is this this type of semi-class war between downscale whites versus upper-scale whites or upscale whites. And this is the real fight we need to have when I don't really think that this is the way to approach it. And there's plenty of problems with downscale whites as there are with upscale whites. I think, you know, with downscale whites, they always say that they're the most likely to be identitarian and have an in-group preference. But I don't know if that's the case because, you know, downscale whites are... Having mixed race, you know, families is much way more than upscale whites. Uh, you know, most of the most of the interracial marriages that are happening are between whites and Hispanics, 
and very few <laughs> upscale whites are marrying Hispanics. It's primarily at the blue collar level. It's the downscale level that that's happening. And it's the same even with like interracial marriages and, co- and children between whites and blacks. That's usually at the downscale level. Whites and Asians, that's more upscale level. Uh, but the vast majority of interracial marriages, as the studies show, it's white Hispanic, and that's happening at the, at the lower end. So I don't know if that's a sign that they care more about their in-group. I just think it's uh, you really just have to create a type of political ideology and political focus that's appealing to smart people who want to make a positive change in the world. And it's not entirely built around Gen X divorce dad uh, resentment and how they view life should be. I think you just have to have a more positive vision that is welcoming to people who uh, may have gone to college. And even though many of the people who rail against college and college grads are college educated themselves, um, you know, a lot of this is just Gen Xers going through a midlife crisis. So you, you can win over these types of people. You just have to have a type of political aesthetics and political focus that is appealing to smart, young, intelligent, I mean, you already used intelligent, but young, intelligent people who think that there's something wrong in the world and that they would like to make a positive change to the world. And I think that that's the real answer to this. But with on the bigger scale with GOP, uh, you know, there's probably some deep structural changes that they need to make to win over to win back college educated whites again. I don't know if they will make them because and at sometimes they're increasing their downscale white turnout so much that maybe they feel they don't need to try to win over college-educated whites. Um, but we'll see. I mean, the main problem with the GOP is that they're losing college-educated whites, and there just needs to be a different way of approaching politics and how they appeal to stuff. And I think the elevation of the ICP, the Insane Clown Party, is really hurting the GOP among college-educated whites. So reducing the stupidity would be my answer (laughs) to how to win over some of these people. And actually, Mystery has one more question that I just uh, noticed, so I I do need to answer this, so I forgot to get to this. He said, can you make any suggestions, book recommendations, anything for how millennials and Zoomers can practically prepare and protect ourselves financially from America's impending Afro-Gerontocratic socialist hellscape i don't know if there's any book recommendations for for that um a lot of the recommendations people have i'm really skeptical about it's like buy crypto and stuff i don't know a lot of what crypto crypto is just as tied as the market as some of the other forms i know some people are going to be appalled by that and outraged but what we've seen with a lot of the economy is that crypto is just as dependent on these normal things it's not really the solution to some stuff um, you know, I would say buy land. I would say that would be one thing is like having property. I think that would be a good way to a good investment to make money off this and ensure yourself that you're not entirely dependent on this. I think it just depends on how bad it is. And being in a, the easiest thing actually to say is just to be live in a red state. That's actually my one advice that I would have. I don't know if there's any type of book recommendations I have. I know there's probably some financial planning advice. I think a lot of that is that is handed out by the right is snake oil and maybe not best listened to and is more hyped up to hysterical formations that there's going to be an upcoming collapse. I don't think there's going to be a collapse. There's going to be, uh, I think there will be a decline in living standards, but you know, it won't be quite the collapse. But if you want to avoid the collapse and are the worst effects of it, I think living in a red state 
is a good is probably the best advice you have. Now, there's some horrible cities in red states, uh, St. Louis, Memphis, and some others, but you know you can live in the suburbs to escape some of the terror terrors of this hellscape. So uh, that is my one practical advice. I'd have to think on that more. I'm sorry I don't have a much better answer, but I do think actually moving to a red state is one of the best options you have. So we're gonna go on to some more questions that we have. I think we have two more questions, and this is one from John. He'd say, who would you say are some good historians on our side? Or if not our side exactly, maybe our side adjacent or at least fairly conservative and don't subscribe to many of the anti-white, anti-American trends that have snowballed in the study of U.S. history in the last decade or so. I think you would just have to go back to older historians. Uh, you know, Merton Coulter, who I did a podcast on on Reconstruction is one example. Um you could say Lothrop Stoddard is a historian. He was a he did get his uh, graduate degree from Harvard in history, so he would count. There's a ton of others. I mean, Francis Parkman, who was a famous 19th century writer, American writer who wrote uh, about you know the early colonial days of America and a and a celebrated uh, volume history that led up to the French and Indian War. He's a great choice to make. Uh, but current historians, you know. Uh, one conservative would be Stanley Payne, who is a Spanish expert who wrote a lot about Franco and the Spanish Civil War. He is actually a conservative. He's like a paleocon. He, he, I think he spoke at some or spoke at a Mencken conference. So that's how r- pretty right wing he is. He is a good recommendation on history. Uh, Paul Gottfried, in that same respect, would be another academic. Uh, I don't know if he would. Paul Gottfried's more of a political scientist, but a lot of his stuff covers history. And he is a respected academic. He is, you know, he did have tenure. And yeah, but Stanley Payne would be probably the one example of a strong conservative historian who would be there. Also, the guy who wrote Stalin's War, Sean McMeekin. I don't think he's open about his views, but reading his books, you can definitely tell he's uh, of a right-leaning bent. So those are some of the few examples. I wish I could give you some more examples, but there's not that many out there. You generally have to read mainstream historians who are generally left wing, uh, like David Hackenfisher, who, even though he's written a lot of great history, especially Albion Seed, he's still very left wing in some of his biases and very liberal. I mean, he had a new book on our African founders, so uh, that gives you a taste of his bias. But you just have to read some of these people. And some of the left wingers have some good history uh, that they're like condemning, but for us it comes with we would have a different interpretation of whether what they're writing about. So that would be my answer to that. And now we'll conclude with New England refugee. He's like, hey Scott, what? A, why has the term autism had such a turnaround in pop culture? When I was young, it meant the dumb kid that would freak out when he heard loud noises or liked to crack ice on the ground with his feet for hours. Now it means a highly proficient workaholic that has some poor social skills. Uh, well, any ideas? Well, the uh, first definition of autism also means that. I think it's just, it really just means you have uh, poor social skills and you can't, you know, you have these weird habits of continually making loud noises and you can't read the room. Uh, so that still has the meaning and a lot of people with autism still have those disabilities to function properly in society. I don't know if it's really reached the mainstream, but I think it's just autism that they now view it as 
just smart people who just can't cope with things. But that's always been the case with smart people. I don't know if people were really on the spectrum. Um, I think that there's maybe more people on the spectrum due to how we uh, learn things now as kids and it's much more uh, TV time and internet time and we maybe don't develop proper social skills. So a lot of our habits are a lot weirder and a lot of our uh, the way we interact with people is really strange. Um, but I don't know. I don't know how it turned around from that. I think it, it was always that way with autism. I think it's that before to be labeled autistic, you would have had to have those really um, those obvious and obnoxious obnoxious habits like you can't function in a classroom. And now that you know we've pared down autism diagnosis to just like a kid with not you know smart kid who doesn't have proper social skills. Now everybody wants to be autistic. So it's just a change in a time. I don't really know why that was their change, but it's happened and. Uh, I don't know if it's, uh, I think it's just those, a lot of women now want to claim that they have autism because it makes up for them uh, being introverted or something. So uh, some of it's female driven, but that's my best analysis on that. I really can't say much more than that, but that is it for our first highly respected of the new year of 2024. Hopefully you guys all enjoyed it. We're going to have some more great content later this week. We'll have a column, at least one column this week and a fantastic IQ supplement later on this week. So tune in for that. So until next time, stay respected.